This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Steve Harding, CFO of TransWestern, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 451. So I've, I've really discovered that people perform far better when they have context. So I, I try to provide them with the reasoning behind the work and context, and I see that working very well. And, and part of the things that we try to look, we try to look for in, in, in employees um, is thinkers. I, I, I absolutely don't look for technicians. And my team knows that the worst answer they can give me uh, when I ask them why they did something uh, is if they tell me, that's what we did last year. That, that's really the best way to get my pulse up to 190 in a very quick way. Um, so I treat my team as, as thinkers, but more importantly, I think they treat the job that way as well. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Guy Melamed, CFO of Veronis Systems. It's probably no surprise that a CFO for a cybersecurity firm specializing in protecting your data keeps data top of mind inside his organization. We speak to Guy about that and what it takes to build a billion-dollar data security firm after these words from our sponsor. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking to Guy Mohammed, CFO and COO of Veronis, a cybersecurity firm. Guy, welcome. Thank you very much, Isaac. Good to have you with us. And uh, as always, Guy, we always begin by having our guests look backwards for us and sharing a few of the experiences they feel uh, prepared them to play a chief financial officer role. Tell us about some of those experiences. Absolutely. So there were three important milestones that relate to me. Uh, number one was not giving in and not giving up, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, the second point relates more to the understanding that early in my career, knowledge and experience were more important to me than making more money. I had some offers from a private sector while I was working in public accounting, but I made the move out of the big four when I felt I was equipped with the right toolkit. Um, 
the right knowledge and the right experience. And point number three was going through an IPO process and the mentoring I had with the former CFO. So I can dig uh, slightly more into those three points. So point number one, not giving in and not giving out. Um, I grew up playing soccer. And I was uh, fortunate enough to play in the Israeli national teams. The, I played in the under-16, under-18, and under-21 teams. And right after completing my mandatory service in the Israeli army, I had to choose between my desire to study, really getting a degree, and my passion for soccer. So I, I really decided to pursue both. And what better place to do that than in the U.S.? So I didn't give in to the pressure from the local teams and some friends and family, many of whom really thought I was crazy. Um, and I did give up playing in Israel, in my home country, but I couldn't give up having both soccer and my education. Now, looking back, it was the right decision, but it definitely wasn't a walk in the park. Because when I came to the U.S. to study, I obviously required you to speak in English all day long, and English was my mother's mother tongue, and she wanted it to be mine, but that wasn't really the case. My, my mother tongue is in Hebrew. So I found myself, during my freshman year in college, literally exhausted every time I was in, in a social setting that required me to be part of a conversation that lasted more than 30 minutes. So I, I didn't really know why I was so exhausted, but I ended up tuning out after a certain period of time. Jack, I, I, really, I can picture your face now. I know you get worried, but, but it's okay. I, it really, it's really no longer a problem for me to have a discussion for more than 30 minutes. I've, I've managed to overcome that hurdle. But it was a challenge at the time. So part of the decision to study in the U.S. Um, made me understand that even though I really enjoyed soccer, while I was in college, I knew that my career in soccer was coming to an end. And with that said, as I was getting close to my senior year, and since we were really doing well, and my college was ranked fifth at the time in the country, which was really a record for the school um, during, during my time, and I, I really enjoyed the game, so I was willing to give it another chance. So after graduating from college with a degree in accounting, I became the first Israeli to get drafted and play in the MLS, which is Major League Soccer. But after playing in the league for a year with the Colorado Rapids and then trying to play in England in the Championship League, that's the second division, um, that was an attempt that really wasn't that successful, I came to another crossroads. I had to choose between soccer and a position, uh, an auditing position. So I had a, a job offer from KPMG, and although I loved soccer, I felt that building my career was the right move at the time. So I accepted the offer, and I, I chose public accounting. I did get a lot of comments from people at the time, again, looking at me as, as if I was crazy. But I must admit, I get less of those comments now, probably because I'm, I'm older and my flight tackles are a bit rusty these days. So looking back at that decision, it definitely feels like it was the right one. So point number two, Early in my career, knowledge and experience were more important to me than making more money. Now, a few years into my public accounting, I received an interesting offer from a private sector for a much larger salary than what I was making at the time. It just didn't seem like the right time for me, so I felt my knowledge and experience was still lacking, and I wanted to make sure that when I moved to the next endeavor, it would 
also a part of your career narrative is that you're based in the States today and you transitioned your maybe it happened around the IPO. Not sure, maybe you'll share that with us. When did you relocate to the States? You were at Veronis originally in Israel, and as you grew into these roles, you moved to the States, I imagine. So during the IPO process, I was more on planes than on the ground. It was uh, it was a very challenging period. Uh, my wife was pregnant with um, our second child, so she had to deal with all the things. Um, but I was traveling really um, a lot. And after we, uh, after the, the, the IPO and the place, uh, being a U.S. company and having the headquarters based in, in New York, it just made sense. Uh, to move with the entire family, and uh, we've been in, in New York since. Okay, so let's find out about this company that you really have invested a, a significant portion of your career. It seems like it has certainly paid off for you as you rose uh, to the finance leadership role. No one would doubt that. But tell us about Baronis and the competitive offerings that you've seen grow along the way during your career the company's grown substantially. Tell us about that. So first of all, from, from my role's perspective, I think that what, what was very interesting is that um, my role at Ronis um, very much grew with the company. So, um, you know, when I started at Ronis in 2011, the revenue was approximately $20, $30 million annually, and we had about 250 employees and about uh, 1,000 customers. Today, we have about 1,400 employees, and we've guided for 2018 full-year revenue of approximately $270 million plus. We have over 6,350 customers as of the end of Q3 2018. So when I joined, I was managing one employee. Today, I'm part of a team with over 60 people. So my job has really evolved just as the company evolved. What is the competitive edge that this company has today? Tell us about the actual products that customers are acquiring here. I think in order to understand really the, the lack of competition that we have, I probably need to provide some background. So, so um, this is, it's very unique for a company our size to have so little competition. So I can we spend a couple of minutes on that? Uh, I'll start by, by telling how Ronis came about because I think it's a very interesting story. So it goes back to 2003, and um, our CEO, Yaki Feitelson, um, the co founder of uh, Ronis, was working at the time with NetApp. And NetApp had a client that had drilling rights in Africa. They were taking pictures of the ocean floor and analyzing those digital images to really understand where there's probability of finding oil and gas. And they accumulated several hundred uh, of those digital images, and one morning they wake up and the folder is completely gone. And as you can imagine, everyone's freaking out because it was worth so much money. And they were trying to figure out who deleted that folder. So they really called everyone, and, and Yaki, um, with his work with Meta, uh, went there. So they asked him if he could actually let them know who was the one that deleted the folder. And he looked at them and said, listen, you're not tracking that. So they actually asked him if he could find out who had access to that folder. 
and he went to work, came back after two, three days, and gave them a list of several hundred names, contractors, and employees that had access to that file. And, and, and they were shocked because there were so many people that had access to that folder that shouldn't have had, absolutely had no business in having access um, to that folder. So they asked him if he could kind of go through all of their sensitive files within the organization and try and figure out who has access to what folder. And he looked at them and said, listen, we're 30 consultants and, and, and a four year, I'm not sure I, I can do that. And that's really where kind of the notion that companies don't track who has access to what data or where your sensitive data fits really came, came to, in, into place. And that hasn't changed today. So if you fast forward to 2014, 2015, there were a couple of high-profile breaches that were going on. And what that really generated was a, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction where companies were, were investing in, in security. But what most of the companies were doing was investing money in the perimeter. The notion was that if you protect your perimeter, you'll be okay. And at the beginning of 2015, we didn't benefit as much from that knee-jerk rea reaction as we hoped. But then towards the second part of 2015, we saw things change. We saw the market, and this was especially in, in the U.S., we saw the market coming to us more. And, and when we, we tracked the number of uh, um, executive dinners that we were holding or the number of inbound leads and, and, and the number of, of questions that we got from C-level executives, we really started to notice a huge difference. And I think there were three main reasons that contributed to that change. Number one was the fact that so many of the companies that were investing in that perimeter defense security still got reached. So they started asking themselves, okay, what do I really need to buy in order to protect data? And I think today the notion that perimeter defense security is the only game in town has been thrown out the window. It's absolutely important and essential to have perimeter defense security, but it can't be the only game in town. The second reason that really changed the market um, and helped us evolve was a product called Data Alert. That was introduced around 2014, 2015, and what that product does is analyzes any abnormal behavior that takes place within the organization in relation to data. So, for instance, if, if an employee opens on average 100 files a day, and in a given day opens 10,000 files, one of two things probably happens. Either that employee is being hijacked and someone's taking over that credentials and through that, those credentials are accessing data they shouldn't be accessing. Or that employee is about to leave and they're saving data on their hard drive so they can give it to a competitor. In either case, you want to know about it. So what we do is send an automatic, easy to read, easy, actionable email to whoever you want within the organization. And, and you don't need an IT dictionary to figure out what to do with that. It basically says, Joe Schmo opens on, opens on average 100 files a day. Today opens 10,000 files. Here's a list of files. Another example of what that product does is if someone's accessing their account from two different locations at the same time, uh, two different continents or, or two different countries, they're probably being hijacked. So we will disable the account automatically send that email to whoever you want within the organization, and it's actionable. The, the security team can, can take action of that, and it's pretty straightforward. Another example is if an admin 
is reading a CEO's email, and then once that email is unread, we would send that automatic alert, and the admin would probably want to would have some explanation to make on, on whether it's missing around. So Bill Alert really simplified the story for us and really helped us in, in showing value and, and analyzing any of normal behavior that was taking place within the organization. The third part that really made the change had to do with the big four accounting firms. Towards the second part of 2015, they made sure that companies were educating the board on what the uh, on on their plan to protect data, what's their plan uh, against the insider threat, and they had a they had a checklist. And Ernst and Young, our auditor, come towards the end of 2015, asked us to present to our board and go through that checklist. What are we What are we doing to protect data? How are we safeguarding our assets? And it was it was a very similar uh, checklist to the ones that we use with our customers. And it was really interesting because when we did that presentation to the board, the board members were sitting around saying, "This is phenomenal. If this type of conversation is taking place with other private and public companies, it's the best marketing tool we can ask for. It's driving down the problem. It's part of a thoughtful process, and it could really benefit us. Benefit us. So." Those were really the three main reasons that kind of got us to where we are today. Now, what's, what's really fascinating today is that the problem hasn't changed. Companies still don't know who's accessing their data and what their sensitive files are. So if you ask your CISO today or your IT, if your financial statements were accessed today by an unauthorized party, would you know about it? Ask them, and I, I can, I, I'll, I'll be pretty shocked if uh, the non-bonus customers uh, get a satisfactory answer. Before we go any further, I should have asked this earlier. Is this a, is this a SaaS model? Or? No, no, we're a perpetual tech license. Um, we, we sell um, annual maintenance, which is uh, usually about 20% of, of the uh, license price. So we, we focus on what people have the most but know the least about. So we're focused on the data. And, and when we look at some of the problems that organizations are facing, um, it's very interesting to see how the conversation evolves and gets elevated when we show them their vulnerability on their own production data. So we provide a free risk assessment. It takes up to 90 minutes to do the installation. It's an off-the-shelf product. And we come to, to the customer, and, and when we do that, it's fascinating to see how... Um, Companies realize how vulnerable they are on their data. So, just to give you some 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 points, approximately 60% of organizations have more than 100,000 folders open to everyone in the company, and approximately 40% of organizations have at least a thousand sensitive files open to all of their employees. Now, you don't need more than one sensitive file out there to ruin or destroy an organization, let alone more than a thousand. So. A story that actually happened recently was that one of the sales reps performed that risk assessment and realized that there was a payroll file that was open to everyone in the company. And that payroll file had the, the full breakdown of salaries and compensation and bonuses and anything you can imagine. And, and that rep went to the CISO and told him that the receptionist that just let him in had access to his salary and has also access to the CFO and the CEO's salary. 
in discussing the argument because the teacher didn't agree or didn't think that that was even possible. So they walked into the receptionist's desk and the rep clicked the link and the file just popped up. So Hazel's jaw drops and, and obviously that really elevates the conversation because seeing it on, in, in your own data, in your own eyes, is, is something very powerful. So when we analyze the amount of companies that appear head-to-head against us in any of those risk assessments, we really see little to no competition. We see companies pop up in less than 5% of those risk assessments. So it, it's a very unique um, unique offering. Okay. Well, we want to uh, find out more about your lines of sight into the organization and uh, what metrics uh, allow you to understand how the company's performing. What would you tell us? I think it depends on the day that I'm looking at the metrics. We're a very metric-driven company. So the metrics from the operational side um, deal with more with the different sales teams, the number of meetings, the number of risk assessments that I was, that I was just talking about, and of course the, the, the sales that come in. Um, so it's very interesting. We, we try and track everything. And, and different metrics have different days that we track them. So, it really, so you, my answer to your question is really dependent on the day that we're looking at, at those metrics. Can I point out, too, that uh, you've taken on the Chief Operations Officer title as well at Peronis. And that, that was something more recent. Uh, first, you obtained the Chief Financial Officer role and then uh, Chief Operations Officer title uh, came this past year. What, what, what would you tell us about that role and how finance and the CRO role seem, or, uh, seem to be aligned uh, for your organization? I think the combination of the CFO role and the COO role work very well together. I think that the combination of looking at things in a very metric-driven approach uh, but having the ability to look at reports in an unbiased and, and honest way um, is, is a way that really helps the organization. So for us, and I know that for some of the other companies as well, um, having that role combined, I see that as a benefit um, and, and not, as, uh, not in any other way because it's definitely very helpful to have kind of the two points of views combined and, and look at things with the analytical side of things, but through an unbiased and, and, and honest reporting. Because, as you know, there are so many ways to look at reports and you can put them in so many different angles. Um, you need to make sure that it's not the right way and that the processes and the fact that the company is so metric-driven really helps when, when that's combined together. You say it's very metric-driven. What are the metrics? What are you, what are you looking at? And I have to believe there's you know, some operational metrics that in particular you're keeping a close eye on. So the, the metrics, obviously, from, from the finance side, there's the budget side that we, we track very closely. Um, and, and when you look at the operational side, there are, there are many metrics that, that we follow. And as I said before, it really relates to the day uh, that we're looking at the metrics because we look at a lot of reports and they're based on days. Um, so some of them would be number of meetings, some of them would be number of risk assessments that they described before, um, and then some of them relate really to, to the bookings that come in. And, and so there's a lot of things that we track that really depends on, on the day we're, we're looking at the report. Can you 
sales meetings, or what, what would you measure the number of meetings? Because, as I described before, our selling process is very visual. So, we make sure that our sales team goes to the customer and then does a free risk assessment. The free risk assessment is really part of the selling process. It's an off-the-shelf product. It takes up, it takes up to 90 minutes to do the installation. But then we provide them with a report that shows their vulnerability. How many files are open to everyone in the company? How many sensitive files are open to everyone in the company? Who's accessing the financial statements that doesn't have authority to access them? So this is something that many organizations don't have any visibility to. So I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that if other CFOs would go to their CISOs tomorrow and, and ask them to try and provide them the list of people that have accessed um, their financial statements, the unauthorized ones, they wouldn't be able to get a response. So it's a, it's a very interesting selling process, and we track every part of that selling process. How many meetings have been generated, how, how many meetings have been converted, um, and, and we are very metric-driven in, in that sense. Uh, so we're going to handle and understanding what team is doing well and what team uh, needs to push. CFOs are telling us they're spending their days looking into the Salesforce data or their CRM data. And I'm curious if that's the situation here. We are using Salesforce. I, uh, I definitely look at, uh, at Salesforce data, uh, both on the app and on the desktop. So it, it's definitely an app that's, that's open uh, throughout the day. In, in your operational role, I, I imagine you're always thinking of things to measure. But does it, uh, are there sources of data or new operational metrics that, you know, you've identified that, hey, here's a better way for us to look at, at our business opportunities, uh, or is that not part of the story for you at the moment? No, it, it absolutely is part of the story, and I have a bit of a non-conventional answer to your question. So, but really goes back to the metric-driven company that we are and, and the fact that we track so many components. But one of the more interesting sources of data we review is how many companies reported that they were breached. And if you think about it today, in the Fortune 500 companies, it's easier to name the companies that haven't been breached than the ones that have. And the amount of companies that report on a data breach is growing by the day. So if you look at, at GDPR, which is an EU general data protection regulation that is really considered by many the most important change in data privacy regulation in the last 20 years. So GDPR, apart from not just applying to organizations located within the EU, it also applies to organizations located outside the EU that are doing business uh, in the European Union. That regulation has significant teeth. It has fines, to com it has fines for companies that, that are in breach, and the fines are pretty significant. They're up to 4% of global revenue, or 20 million euros, whichever is greater. So, in anticipation for that um, regulation, we, we predicted that one of the results of that regulation will be more companies in EMEA that report on a breach. Because with that regulation, there's a 72-hour reporting requirement. So, we recently discovered that a Portuguese hospital was fined 400,000 euros for having patients' records open for all the doctors in the hospital. And they weren't even breached and they were fined. So it's a very interesting story. And, and we definitely track the type of companies that were breached and what were the reasons for, for that 
Our interview with finance leader Guy Malamed continues after our Thought Leader Minute. Hello. On today's Thought Leader Minute, we speak to Trish Coglin, Vice President and Corporate Controller for Workday. We ask Trish how finance leaders are today broadening their view by aligning their financial metrics with non-financial metrics. Here's what she shared. In a finance world, I think the the more powerful piece of that is when you can try and um, marry that data up with the financial data to get better insights. I think the Salesforce information or the CRM information is very powerful in in and of itself. I think it becomes exponentially more powerful when you can combine that with some of the financial data then you can look at, you know, your your revenue and your impact, your op, let's say your operating margin impact or gross margin impact across different industries, different size of customers, different channels of customers. Um, and if you can get that um, gross profit information by customer and by those dimensions, that's a lot more powerful than just having a revenue number because you can understand by those different dimensions how that revenue translates into profitability for the company. Don't miss our complete discussion with Trish at the end of today's episode when Workday's Annette Malati also joins us to discuss the recent findings of Workday's Finance Redefined study. Now back to our CFO interview. So we always like to ask Guy for a finance strategic moment, which is a, a moment of strategic insight that you've experienced along the way in your career. And uh, I suspect it might be at Veronis, but maybe it happened back when you were an auditor. Doesn't doesn't matter time-wise. But uh, would you share with us a finance strategic moment? So I'm not sure it's exactly a finance strategic moment, but it was definitely a moment that applies to every every action I have in finance. Uh, so I, I will share that with you. Uh, when I was in the under-16 Israeli national team, uh, we started working with a psychologist, and, and he asked us he asked us to write down, and he absolutely insisted on, on, on us writing it down and not just thinking about it. He wanted us to write three goals where we wanted to achieve in, in the upcoming year. Now, the goals I wrote seemed to me at the time very far-fetched, uh, and they were goal, they were team goals and seemed so unachievable, yet we hit every single one of them. And, and that was the lesson I learned for life. And that was really my kind of moment. And it, it really has been uh, true throughout my professional career as well, that if you put your mind to a specific goal and you share your thoughts with your team, think together about, think together about ways to achieve it, it really works. So not, no matter what challenge we have and, and what hurdles turn up along the way, um, as a team, you know, you're so much stronger th- than an individual, and, and the strategy continues to work for me. I haven't been asking this question recently, and I'm not really certain why. I think it's kind of important. It has to do with uh, how finance leaders are influencing uh, the workforce uh, sort of mindset within their organization. And I begin by sharing uh, this anecdote. The CFO asks the CEO, what happens if we spend money training our people and then they leave the company? And the CEO says, well, what happens if we don't and they stay? 
wondering if you can uh, reflect on that. It seems like in that brief conversation, the CFO is sort of the bad guy. He's the CEO is reminding the CFO, hey, we better invest in our people to give them a reason to stick around. So the CFO has to be a little more talent-minded, perhaps these days than ever, just giving you know, hiring is such a such a challenge. Uh, can you share with us a little bit of your mindset when it comes to the organization's workforce? So I actually think it's a great question. And I think there are a couple of priorities that we try to do um, as a company, and I try to do for my team. One of them is making sure that we provide the right communication at the right time to the right people. So I've, I've really discovered that people perform far better when they have context. So I, I try to provide them with the reasoning behind the work and context, and I see that working very well. And and part of the things that we try to look we try to look for in, in, in employees um, is thinkers. I, I, I absolutely don't look for technicians. And my team knows that the worst answer they can give me uh, when I ask them why they did something uh, is if they tell me that's what we did last year. That, that's really the best way to get my pulse up to 190 in a very quick way. Um, so I treat my team as, as thinkers, but more importantly, I think they treat the job that way as well. And every single member of my team can probably get 50 job offers within a week. Yet most of the team, uh, most of the team members have, have been part of, of the company for many, many years. So they don't work for me or they don't work for, for Veronis. That's absolutely not the way we look at things. Uh, we work as a team together to achieve the company's goals and the department's goals and, and even their own goals. And, and that's the way we view things, um, both in the department and in the company. All right. We're going to enter our mentoring round now where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? I think how much finance is intertwined with every component of any business. And, and the fact that finance is another language and has the ability to, to kind of maneuver within the, the, the challenges, the risks, and even the changes in the environment, that, that's really what's exciting for me. Well, this next question, uh, for once, might not seem appropriate. It seems like you had a, a CFO who mentored you and, and uh, uh, brought you into the role. But what do you wish someone had told you at the very start of the CFO career? So when you finally stepped into that role, there must have been something that surprised you or you felt somewhat unprepared for in some way. Well, anything come to mind? Yeah. The CFOs are really an enormous source of knowledge, kind of the know-how with a lot of experience, but even more importantly, that they are happy to share that with younger less experienced but yet eager to learn CFOs. Um, that's been really a, a, an eye-opener and has benefited me tremendously and, and a bit of a surprise when I kind of entered um, my position. So the mentoring continued in a way. Is that what you're, you're saying, if I understand? With other CFOs, some of them are, are very experienced and they were more than happy to share their knowledge the other CFOs that were eager to learn. So that was a bit of a eye opener. The CFO peers, the CFO peers, yeah. Absolutely. Who else would uh, empathize better and, and understand uh, the unique challenges? Absolutely. Is there a personal habit uh, you believe has contributed to your professional success? I think it's the attention to detail. I'm very meticulous about the order of things. 
and, and even being sure that I, I have clarity. It really needs to make sense. Uh, and so I always look at things from many different angles, and it, it really goes back to not giving in and, and not giving up. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I think just like there are many events in life that kind of shaped my decision and, and thought process, there have been many books that I've benefited from. The latest book uh, I'm, I'm reading, and I really enjoyed, is Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb. Uh, he also wrote Told by Randomness, which I enjoyed. And what I liked about the latest book is, is kind of a re- risk-reward correlation, or better yet, how there should be a direct correlation between the two. It was really uh, a refreshing read. I, before we get to our final question, I, I have to circle back to soccer and ask you, uh, are you still playing? It seemed to have been such a formative force in your early uh, career and, and uh, development. What lasting impact or influence has it had on you as a professional? So I try to play it. I don't think I play um, clearly as, as much as I need to, but I'm, I'm doing my best. And, and just like I said before, my slide tackles are a bit rusty, so probably best for everyone that I, I stay off the field. But, but seriously, for a second, um, Soccer has really helped me in so many ways. And, and just thinking about um, the, the, the tremendous opportunity it generated with, with uh, coming to the U.S. and combining soccer and academics. And kind of throughout my, my life, it, it really brought me to places I would never be able to get otherwise. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that uh, throughout my, my life. We asked Guy for his finance leader priorities over the next 12 months after this short message from our sponsor. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Thank you. Um, Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So I think that being a public company, we really started discussing publicly our our plan to get to a billion dollars in sales. Uh, And we won't get there in the next 12 months, uh, that's for sure, but we... We know what we need to do to achieve our goal. Um, so it's, it's, ne- it's never smart to depend on one path only to get someplace. Uh, and with that in mind, we're, we're making sure that it, there's no one path we're focusing on, but multiple paths, because with one path, you can often get stuck at a roadblock. So we want to make sure we have three or four different ways to get there. And, and as I discussed before, when I joined Veronis, we had about $20 million in sales, and we presented a plan to the Veronis management team on, on how to get to 100 million. And there were employees who laughed. Now, we recently presented to management the path to a billion, uh, and no one was laughing. So, um, also, when you think about it, going from 20 million to 100 million, 
is much more difficult statistically than going from 200 plus million to, to a billion. So as we look at the market today, the need for companies to monitor and, and protect critical data has really never been more important. And that demand for the solution really confirms our strategy and, and that the plan is working. So we really want to continue to scale our business, improve the non-gap operating margin, while we deliver increased levels of, of cash flow from operations. So I, I look forward to maintaining our path for, for the next 12 months and beyond because we build it towards that billion-dollar business. Guy Malamed, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having me. Speaking with Trish Coglin, Vice President and Corporate Controller for Workday, and Annette Malati, Senior Director of Product Marketing for Workday Financials. Trish and Annette, welcome. Thank you for having us, Jack. Hi, Jack. Well, given all of what we've been hearing from finance leaders over the last year when it comes to their digitization efforts, both positive and negative in terms of what's been achieved. We knew this was a great opportunity to explore with you some of the findings featured um, in a recent Workday study titled Finance Redefined. Now, as you may imagine, this study really covers a lot of ground. And what we're doing is making our entire discussion available to you in long form, uncut, on CFOFaultLeader.com. You can access it right now on the front of the site. And also, uh, if you're interested in the study, just Google Finance Redefined Workday, and it, it'll quickly surface in your search. Uh, but right now, if you're listening to the podcast, this is an edited portion of that interview, and it's the portion that zeroes in on, among other things, how finance is increasingly seeking out non-financial metrics. It's the area I know our finance leaders are exploring ever more closely, and I wanted to make sure to include it here. We begin with me posing a question to Trish about the changing role of the controller and how controllers today must adopt a new mindset across the organization and reach out. Here's what she shared. Yeah, I, I would say they, they need to look at their role and, and how they can redefine that. They should have the goal of being a good business partner um, with the other key stakeholders across the organization and then think about what that means within their organization and how they can do that. And as part of that, it's really providing them with better information to help them run their business better. And so you sort of start there and, and work backwards, right? And in terms of how that's going to be most helpful, it's going to be keeping abreast of what a lot of the latest technology is, whether or not they have that technology currently at their company or not, but they need to be open-minded to that and have those open dialogues with um, IT to help them get the tools that they need to be able to provide that information to the business. Um, and they shouldn't be constrained by what exists today. Um, they just need to closely collaborate with IT and others to figure out what are those tools and and build the business case for the investment for the company. 
can I can I add to that? Because I think that um, one of the things that's interesting as we look at um, talent just in general, and you know, I mentioned this kind of buy, borrow, um, or um, um, you know that that kind of approach is, you know, when we're, when people are also looking at organizations that are looking at bringing in new talent. Often the systems that they're using can be an, um, a, an, a deterrent or can be an attraction. So when a company is really leveraging new and innovative technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, they have you know cool uh, business intelligence tools. Um, that's going to attract some you know the, the the folks that are coming out of school that are you know super smart, and they're going to be drawn to companies that think like that or that have the tools in place to really um, foster that type of behavior. Um, if you are on really old um, technology or you're on um, and you aren't embracing these newer digital technologies, um, I think companies are really going to be at a disadvantage when they're trying to recruit in and bring in new talent, especially if they're going to look to bring in some of that talent to augment um, some of the tr more traditional skills and the role of the you know the folks that are there today. So I think you know that's something else that when you're when they're looking at talent, um, how do you um, that it's a bigger picture about not only just bringing in the talent, but what are the systems that these folks would be using? Yeah, you don't want to uh, take a step backwards and step into an environment that is was three years behind um, perhaps the company you're 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 leaving, I suppose. And and what I was. Uh, zeroing in on is the uh, uh, Trish's comment about, uh, you know, speaking out in the company to different functional groups or managers about the types of strategic information they would find uh, useful in having the discussions with the IT people and understanding better the challenges of, of making that uh, data flow to that, to that particular function or, or part of the organization. And then, and then building the business case, you know, how, what would be involved in, in helping us bring that data forward with the strategic opportunities actually uh, be realized. Uh, but, but there we see a controller that's really uh, stepping out beyond and, and exploring uh, how uh, they can uh, bring more strategic data to the people who are, who are really, uh, you know, on the front lines making some of the decisions. You know, when I had read the results of the survey, I was actually very surprised to hear about how um, how much the roles didn't coordinate between um, the CIO and the CFO's organization. You know, in my current role, I think the relationship is super strong. And I'll be honest, I would be, I, my teams wouldn't be as effective without the partnership that I have with the um, CIO organization here at Workday. One of our other key partners is the um, human resources organization. And um, given that we've got a unified system, um, the things that they do impact financials and the things that we do have a lot of impact in them. So we need to collaborate very closely in terms of understanding what the priorities are so that we can deliver um, the most impactful information to the organization together. You know, we also work very closely uh, with the sales organization um, in terms of trying to identify what those revenue forecasts are, working really closely with them in terms of monitoring that, getting the information from, from their system that they use into the financial systems, making sure that we're married up on there and so that we um, monitor that pretty closely, which obviously for most companies um, is an important metric, sales. And so, you know, that's very close, um, sorry. So that's very important to us as well. 
um, clearly. And so that relationship is pretty essential to make sure that we are in lockstep with that because if we're not aligned to what their pipeline is and what their future revenue um, projections are, that's obviously going to impact the way we externally communicate our results and our forecasts. You know, it, it's interesting. We've touched on uh, non-financial metrics in this discussion a few times, and I have to say that in our discussions with CFOs, finance leaders love to talk about which non-financial metrics uh, they've incorporated into their key metrics mix. Um, in a finance world, I think the, the more powerful piece of that is when you can try and um, marry that data up with the financial data to get better insights. I think the Salesforce information or the CRM information is very powerful in, in and of itself. I think it becomes exponentially more powerful when you can combine that with some of the financial data. Then you can look at um, you know, your, your revenue and your impact, your op let's say your operating margin impact or gross margin impact across different industries, different size of customers, different channels of customers. Um, and if you can get that um, gross profit information by customer and by those dimensions, that's a lot more powerful than just having a revenue number because you can understand by those different dimensions how that revenue translates into profitability for the company. And to, and to and actually to add to that, um, you know, with, um, Workday being a service-based company, obviously that CRM information is is you know extremely important. But there, each industry has operational data that is really critical to their business, and being able to bring in that operational data, um, whether it's insurance and its claims and its policies, et cetera, or whether you're um, um, a hospital and its patients and procedures, et cetera, um, that information is so. Critical to be blended with your financial data, so you can start seeing um, your metrics by and your revenue by those different um, pieces of information that are in that operational system. And it's and I think it's it's so important for for organizations to be looking at what are some of the key questions that they would like their system to answer today, um, but they aren't able to get those answers and and really start looking at. You know what? What are those questions? Um, and and try to really you know get those answers because I think it's and I think answers are going to come by blending that data, that non-traditional, um, non-it's not you know non-you know finance data, that operational data with that with that finance data uh, to make that happen. And so I think that that is uh, even the survey alluded to that was just blending you know not only um, kind of unstructured data when you think about conversations and the chat you know the chat bots and those types of things but just other non-financial data um, to do analysis um, and to and, and I think it will also what it will start doing is it will start bringing to light quite, um, answers to questions you didn't even think to ask so and I think that that's so important um, to use from a competitive standpoint in today's economy. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our discussion, but I wanted to touch one last time on the four priorities uh, the research brought forward. And in my mind, the findings of this uh, study are, are intended to point a direction for CFOs. It, it says, here's where your leadership is needed, and here's where some imagination is perhaps needed. And Ed, am I right, or how would you put it? By redefining finance's approach to resilience, intelligence, leadership, and talent, CFOs can 
show that finance is determined to change and play its part in transforming the enterprise for the digital age. And Trish, what would you add? I think part of this is finance can't do this alone. Finance really has to take that leadership role and work with the people across the organization to demonstrate the importance of the transformation and then have the rest of the C-suite partners be a part of that transformation and support that transformation for finance. Um, because I think, you know, it's hard to do on a, on a standalone basis for, for finance, but they need to show the, the value proposition, right? They need to show how it's going to impact the ability to more proactively manage the risk and manage the upcoming change um, and the tools that, and the intelligence and the things that they're going to need to be able to do that, right? And then they need to start thinking about, well, how do I have the right people in place to support that transformation, right? And so thinking about what are those roles and, and how do we put that into the organization? Because you can't just, you know, drop people all at once into an organization and expect it magically to happen, right? You've got to be thoughtful about where you insert them or to use your analogy that you um, used before, the buy, the build, the borrow, right? How do you effectively do that? And so I think it's really putting together that vision and really getting the buy-in and support from the rest of the organization that, that's going to make that happen. Um, you know, and the other thing is finance, the traditional finance professionals are a little bit risk averse, right? And so it's different for them. And so probably one of the more important pieces of this is getting in people with different viewpoints and different experiences who can help shape that because the traditionalists probably won't be able to do it alone. Workday's Trish Coglin and Annette Malati. Thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having us. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.